I'm Graham Smith. We established the Mothers Program to provide a reliable source of information about pregnancy on the internet with the goal to improve mothers' health through education, research, and screening. The Mothers Podcasts are an extension of that. Today, we're going to be discussing cannabis use in pregnancy. Our guest is Dr. Heather Watson. Dr. Watson is a psychosocial obstetrics and gynecology fellow, completing a fellowship through the University of Manitoba, specializing in addiction and mental illness, and how they intersect with reproductive health. Heather, welcome and thank you for taking the time to speak with us. It's my pleasure, Graham. Thanks for the invitation. So cannabis and cannabis products have a number of different effects that might benefit a woman's health and well-being, might be useful in managing symptoms associated with certain conditions. In other instances, though, the use of cannabis may lead to harm and worsen health and well-being for women. Can you give us some background on what cannabis and cannabinoids are and, and how they cause the effects that they do? Well, in terms of what we know uh, and what we don't know in terms of uh, cannabinoids and women's health, I'm going to be bold and say that there's far more that we don't than what we do. Um, we have some pretty decent understandings about receptors and, and some of the actions that cannabinoid receptors can have in terms of pain and maybe nausea, maybe some anti-inflammatory capacities, but we really don't have that well articulated. So informally, you know, cannabis has been used for thousands of years for things like dysmenorrhea and hyperemesis. Those ancient remedies bear pretty little resemblance to the extremely potent cultivated compounds that we have on the market now. And then further to that, it's been really challenging to study these things very effectively. While it was illegal, and like any illicit substance, our research is limited to observational trials that tend to be small, tend to be confounded with variables, with a fair amount of uncertainty about the purity of products that are influencing participants. So it's a little bit of that early kind of research, and that's what we basically have to deal with right now. We have some pretty good data that these substances can alleviate cancer-related nausea and rare forms of epilepsy, but other findings that imply that cannabis might benefit arthritis or specific types of social anxiety and a variety of inflammatory conditions, those studies are underpowered with study groups of 20 to 25 subjects, for example, without randomization or blinding, leaving the study vulnerable to a variety of bias. The large majority of research includes dosing, too, that's just not reflective of what people use in the community. They tend to have a dose that's similar to one very small joint in a 24-hour period and that regular use is defined as more than three times a month. Marijuana enthusiasts tend to consume between four to ten times that amount of compounds. So we don't really have studies that reflect true use and we can't drill down to you know find granular data on that just yet. We know that there are some harms as well. There's a steep correlation between psychosis and cannabis, but we don't really know yet if that's cause or effect. Are they are individuals using marijuana to self-medicate early psychotic symptoms or does regular exposure induce schizophrenia? We just don't know. So what we really need is large comprehensive studies that mirror community use. And then again, as is too common in medicine, they need to actually address women's health. That tends to lag usually by about a 10-year gap in terms of new innovations in medicine. To date, the most preliminary studies that look at use of cannabis, for example, for menstrual dysfunctions, specifically endometriosis, PMS, PMDD, they're really just emerging with no real conclusions to draw yet, although early findings do favor that pelvic pain might be an area for benefit. 
We see, however, a correlation with increased needs for infertility treatment with N ovulatory cycles with the presumption that GnRH expression is suppressed, but we don't really have that mechanism elucidated yet. At the other end of the reproductive life cycle, we know just as little about its effects in menopause. A systematic review that was published just this year looked at 500 studies and only three of them met quality criteria. And one of those studies just had 10 subjects. That's not a study, that's a dinner party. We know there's lots to be learned, but we don't really have a good handle on either benefit or harms. As you're aware, cannabis was legalized in Canada on October 17th in 2018. I think this was done without all the questions and concerns dealt with, just as you say, in terms of the the studies, specifically as it relates to pregnancy and younger populations. Are there safety concerns related to cannabis use? Anything that's smoked has a significant risk for an individual's cardiorespiratory health, brain development, and for pregnancy. Through a variety of mechanisms, smoking decreases oxygen delivery to the placenta and thereby to the fetus. And there's potentially some significant neurodevelopment impairment that are studies now that are implying last all the way into adulthood. How much we attribute this to the act of smoking and how much is specifically cannabinoid is really difficult to say. So would these findings be different, for example, if we compared edible content versus smoked? The other thing is that I think we sometimes are unintentionally measuring other social determinants of health. For example, marijuana use during pregnancy is highly correlated by sixfold to a lack of education less than high school graduation. We already know that marginalization and poverty increase growth restriction and increase prematurity, and we see those things reflected in cannabis use in pregnancy. Which one's the cart and which one's the horse can be a little bit challenging to discern. As we get more of this data, my expectation is that we're going to find a greater likelihood for fetal harm than for maternal benefit. In terms of younger populations using, that's a really important question. The general theory is that, you know, dopamine is upregulated in the adolescent brain. And so any kind of substance exposure is much higher risk for troublesome addiction and longer lasting consequences. And while popular culture tends to reject the idea that you can become addicted to marijuana, it's something that we certainly see. Individuals can feel that their use is out of their own control. It's limiting their successes or hurting their relationships, consuming disproportionate amounts of time and resources, and even demonstrating withdrawal syndromes of anxiety and nausea and amotivation. That's all real. So in terms of adolescent gynecology, we really need to be thinking about these exposures in that population that we see in the younger ages. And we do have a correlation there with increased STI incidence. And, you know, we wonder too about some other downstream findings that we're going to discover. Both cannabis and oral contraceptives are metabolized by P450 enzymes. And so there may be an interaction that we see that affects efficacy. We really have a lot to learn. And that younger population is somebody that we need to think about in slightly more, a higher index of concern. At Queen's, we did a study where we had ethics approval to collect anonymized urine samples from women in labor uh, in the months leading up to October 2018, then repeated it a year later, really to get an idea of how many women around the time of delivery were using cannabis, but also to see what was the impact legalization had. The data hasn't been published yet, but about 10% of women were using it, and the number didn't seem to change with legalization. The SOGC did an excellent info campaign around cannabis and pregnancy at that time. 
And one of the things that really identified was that there are many people who see cannabis as a natural herb and, and so much information or misinformation abounds on the internet. With so many unknowns, why do pregnant women use cannabis? You know, I joke with patients often that just because it's leafy and green doesn't make it salad. They could be a little bit of a romantic attachment to the idea of something being natural, but there's all kinds of negative natural things and dangerous natural things in the world. I think we do see a difference in perception in general. I don't know how much we're really seeing a great difference in use amongst younger people, but certainly perception of risk has changed. Over the last 15 years, prior studies showed that most people assume that smoking pot during pregnancy was harmful. And that's reversed since legalization. And now it's about 65% of surveyed people assume that it has no effect. That doesn't necessarily drive their use and doesn't necessarily turn into so far that there's a big increased uptake. But I do think that we're going to see a shift in terms of that consumption. And this is primarily a result of just exposure bias. Most people have a friend or relative who regularly uses and is just fine. And most people have had at least one use exposure themselves. And so the sense that there's a danger or that there's a harm seems pretty abstract. And intoxication with marijuana is perceived as pretty friendly and laid back. So, you know, what could be so bad about something that just makes you sleepy, giggly, and hungry? But in fairness, that's not dissimilar to a glass of wine, right? And that's the comparison I often make when I'm talking with folks about this. I think it's important to bring people back to that risk assessment that isn't binary. It's not that, you know, marijuana is bad and it's, you know, doom and gloom, but just having the sense that there are a range of impact that it can have. And over the past 50 years, one by one, we have identified substances that have psychotropic effects, whether it's alcohol or Valium or codeine, consistently showing harmful effects in pregnancy. So in my opinion, it's a bit of magical thinking to assume that marijuana will be with one exception to that. But is it as bad as nicotine? Is it 10 times worse than coffee? I don't know yet. We've asked patients about use of cannabis in pregnancy, even before it was legalized, but I suspect women are much more likely to acknowledge that they use cannabis now that it is legal. Patients will often state that they use a certain number of grams a day or half a bong or some measurement, which I, I never know what that translates into. Is there an easy way of trying to quantify how much they're using? Should we be asking how many joints they're smoking a day, though that doesn't seem to take into account edibles? We have low-risk alcohol consumption guidelines in Canada. For women, up to two drinks per day within a total of 10 drinks per week seems to be very unlikely to result in troublesome dependence or liver disease. So we kind of have that framework. And I assume at some point we'll have something similar for cannabis. But with the host of THC concentrations from homegrown, street-supplied, and commercially marketed marijuana, one gram doesn't always equal one other gram. It's, I think, more helpful to explore how much money is being spent on the product in, say, a week to get a sense of priority and resource consumption. Is this enough cost that it's forfeiting other more essential priorities? Is it causing hardship? I think it's helpful to understand what happens to your patient if they lose access. Are they distressed? Is it no big deal? Do they have unpleasant symptoms or feel preoccupied with securing more supply? Rather than sorting out the metrics, I think getting a sense of importance from the day-to-day -day life has more impact, and it also helps us identify where we might need to intervene. I really don't know how many grams or too many grams, but I'm pretty sure if you aren't paying your rent, but you are paying for pot, that's a problem. What should we be saying to patients when they identify that they use cannabis? People use substances for really good reasons, and I think that assumption creates a healthy and safe opening to dialogue. 
you know, what does marijuana do for you? Do you think it has any health benefits? Do you feel like it affects your mood? Bridging that that rapport with a place of understanding cultivates that therapeutic relationship, but it helps you learn all kinds of stuff about a patient's mental health, their secondary symptoms, or maybe we're asking them to sacrifice if we suggest cutting down. And I always do. Uh, Anything smoked decreases oxygen delivery in pregnancy. It's very simple. And it doesn't ring a moral posturing, which really has no place in these discussions. I understand that polysubstance use can be a real issue. What else should women who use cannabis along with other drugs consider? You know, cigarette smoking gets glossed over a great deal, but actually it has multiplicative effects in terms of substance-related harms in pregnancy. And it's very frequently coincident with just about every other substance of abuse. Cigarette smoking on its own is associated not just with low birth weight and preterm delivery, but also IUGR and malformations. We really know that it's got a lot more harm than I think we really you know, keep fronting in our minds. And it's very often co-ingested with marijuana. I know that certainly growing up, I was sort of, you know, taught that marijuana is the gateway drug leading to things like, you know, cocaine or opioids, but that's really never borne out. You know, co-ingestion with nicotine, that's something a placenta is not going to be happy about. And so sometimes the harm reduction strategy is to shift away from smoking altogether, maybe consider edible cannabis and support a patient's nicotine cessation. Smoking in pregnancy is also highly correlated with stressful life events, so it can be a bit of a surrogate for stress burden and indications for additional psychosocial support. Outside of pregnancy, um, we see that women's use of cannabis seems to correlate strongly with alcohol. That alcohol use seems to potentiate the severity of marijuana use disorder. This was findings that were studied in a young population, so I don't know if it translates exactly to our menopausal patients. But since substance use is so often paired with a linked habit, often reducing one necessitates weaning or quitting another simultaneously. There are lots of claims about the things that cannabis is helpful for, but I'm not sure of the evidence underlying these. Can you tell us about some of the chatter you've heard about cannabis and women's health in general and and your thoughts on this? Yeah, I remember as a kid, we had this cough syrup called Dr. Fowler's Wild Strawberry Extract. And on the label, it said a most pleasant and effective cure. And it listed like this incredible litany of cholera, dysentery, stomach ulcers, rheumatism, hemorrhoids, sore throat, infant colic, kinker sores, right? It was this whole thing. I feel like the expectations for marijuana are even more dramatic. It's a weed which makes it a spectacular product, easy to cultivate, simple to process. So the pharmaceutical potential is tremendous and marketing will be enthusiastic. But a compound which is known fairly universally to promote lethargy and paranoia is probably not going to be the cure-all that people are hoping for. That said, might it contribute another tool to the endometriosis toolbox? I think it has decent potential. Will it increase hospitalization for cannabinoid hebremesis in pregnancy? You bet. And what about pregnancy? We know that that women continue to use cannabis during pregnancy, often perceive no general or pregnancy-specific risk compared to non-users. According to the data, about a third of regular cannabis users will continue into pregnancy. And of these, 20% meet criteria for cannabis use disorder. That means that they're using the substance enough to cause harm to their lives. And that's a pretty significant proportion. And while the majority of concern in antepartum use focuses all on the fetus, as an obstetrician, it's that pregnant person who's my patient. And I need to be really plugged into what that means for them. 
Are anxiety symptoms keeping them housebound? Is amotivation resulting in job loss? Are they driving under the influence? There are theoretical future harms for baby that are important, but my first priority is the person sitting in front of me who might be suffering negative effects right now. We have good evidence that maternal exposures can affect mom's continued development, particularly when she's younger, all the way up into her mid-20s. So there are long-term memory, cognition, and psychological sequelae to consider for mom as well. There's a well-known study out of Colorado where they surveyed cannabis dispensaries and a very large number recommended pregnant women use cannabis for nausea and vomiting. And when asked about their evidence, much of it was personal use. What about cannabis for nausea and vomiting in pregnancy? Cannabinoid hyperemesis shares a lot of features with hyperemesis gravidarum, with the exception that the cannabis-based etiology doesn't respond to medication. It can present in any trimester, is often very painful, and is only relieved by hot water immersion. It generally doesn't respond to any of our normal antiemetics. I would be pretty loath to give somebody advice to use a substance that could cause them a medically untreatable condition of nausea and vomiting for their nausea and vomiting. You know, one of the things that I find really interesting is patient resistance to this idea of cyclic vomiting that's connected with cannabis use. It's extremely rare that when I address this topic with folks that they respond in a receptive manner. If, however, I talk to them about, you know, the constipating effects of Tylenol number three or the nausea and itch that it can cause, people are generally really willing to accept that those side effects are reasonable descriptions, right? I think that people feel quite defensive about the use of marijuana, which is really understandable given that there's still stigma and that unspoken discomfort that a physician might project unwittingly. Maybe it comes from the fact that we don't have a lot of data and we don't have confidence in in our recommendations. But as a patient, maybe I would receive that as judgment about me personally in a moral way. So maybe there's some of that relational kind of, you know, friction that we can help improve. What I find is that addressing this question of the cyclic vomiting needs to be pretty delicate. Then also figuring out, you know, is this marijuana based? Is it just an exacerbation of you know, pre-existing IBS? Is it stress? Is it a manifestation of pregnancy? Kind of couching it in a fairly morally neutral way can be helpful. I tend to make a lot of comparisons between marijuana and alcohol in my conversations with patients. You know, we'll talk about how a hangover is an unpleasant effect after alcohol use. And that tends to be considered sort of morally neutral. And then I can introduce the idea of cannabinoid hyperemesis without, you know, throwing up walls unintentionally. So what about effects of cannabis on the developing fetus? Well, I think the jury is still out about exactly how extensive that impact is going to be, both in the immediate newborn period and long-term, but we are definitely seeing signals of risk that relate to neurocognitive development, some lifelong vulnerabilities to substance use disorders, and mild delays in motor development. However, since there's so much overlap with some of the other social determinants of health that we talked about earlier, the impact of cannabis use in pregnancy might be overrepresented. Obstetrical outcomes are a little easier to pin down since there are shorter time intervals and a little bit more black and white, but there's growing evidence of developmental effects which are a little reminiscent of fetal alcohol syndrome. And I think that's sort of the take-home message I really try to address with patients. Time will tell how significant an impact this might have and what other sort of ameliorating factors we can maybe offer to offset some of the severity of that impact. For example, how how increasing iron supplementation in an alcohol-exposed pregnancy might have protective effects. There may be something similar that we'll discover about cannabis use. 
What about use of cannabis uh, by women who are breastfeeding? We know that THC concentrates in breast milk in pretty significant quantity and has a tremendously long half-life, greater than 30 hours. So this is a really significant impact in terms of infant feeding behaviors. We notice that these babies struggle to form a good latch, they're often sleepy at the breast, and can have failure to thrive as a result. Because that half-life is so long, there's no real benefit to that sort of timing of exposure of cannabis versus the breastfeeding routine. So it's really an area where actually we can make fairly confident claims that less is best and that there's a pretty clear and observable impact on the health of the newborn. When you purchase cannabis products, you get them with different amounts of THC or CBD. Do we know if there's any difference in the fetal effects on the use or use in nausea and vomiting if we compare THC or CBD? Well, one of the fun facts to know in Canada is that it's actually allowed to have as much as 1% THC in your product and still call it THC-free. There are no commercially available products in the cannabinoid family that are THC-free in Canada. Where that can have an impact is that a lot of the CBD oil products require multiple capsules with each dose and several doses per day, which over the course of 24 hours can mean a fair amount of THC exposure. And we don't really have great metrics for how much that might be. In terms of understanding some of the distinctions between these two compounds, our ability to separate them is still in pretty early stages of understanding. In terms of safe dosing, the outcomes in obstetrics that are specific to either THC versus CBD or the different strains of marijuana or smoked versus vaped versus ingested, this is all pretty uncharted territory. And that's in the general population. We certainly don't have that kind of granular data for pregnancy. We clearly have a lot to learn about cannabis and its effects on women, as well as harms and benefits for health, despite the fact that people have been using cannabis for centuries. Do you have any advice for women who use cannabis who are contemplating pregnant or already pregnant? I think in general, I encourage women to develop a good relationship with their provider and talk about some of the risks that they have in their lives. Some individuals will be very strident during a pregnancy and not drink a single cup of coffee because they're concerned about caffeine effects on their fetus. And other people know that if they don't have their coffee, their quality of life, relationships, employability, you know, can be pretty impacted. Everybody's pretty uh, unique in terms of how they approach their relationship to substances. So a lot of this is really just that individual conversation around making the choices that reflect a patient's values the best with some information that can help ground their decisions in, and again, that non-judgmental way. For if I have a patient that uses a great deal of marijuana, I might sort of guide them towards edibles before we talk about cessation as a bit of a bridge. We talk about the fact that it's got a much longer sort of interval of onset and they need to anticipate that, or they might find it very frustrating. Thinking about harm reduction first as a general principle, and then fine-tuning that idea to each individual situation. And I think that is tends to be how we intuitively make risk decisions all the time in our lives, meeting people where they are already at instead of having some idealized picture that they're supposed to step into tends to be both more effective and more, more therapeutic in terms of creating that rapport and bond with the provider. Thank you, Heather, for taking the time to join us to talk about cannabis and pregnancy. I want to thank our guest as well as Adelaide Burroughs, who helped to produce this podcast and for those behind the scenes. We will put links to more information on this and other topics on our website, www.themothersprogram.ca, 
The Mother's Program is all one word. If you have any comments, suggestions, or ideas for topics or people who we should interview, please use the contact section on our website. Until next time, be safe. Be safe.